Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm your host, Ethan Delves. Today, my guest is your regular host, Josh Herring. Josh is a PhD student with Faulkner University, an assistant administrator for Thales Academy Apex Junior High High School, and a regular writer for the Acton Institute, Public Discourse, and Law and Liberty. Today, I'm here to conduct an interview with Josh to sort of reflect on season one of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. We worked together on a previous podcast project called What's the Res, outlining the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. And um, now I'm a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill. We brought the podcast to a close and I'm back to interview Josh and get his thoughts on his new project. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ethan. I was just already, I'm going to resist the temptation to be all nostalgic and go down memory lane. Uh, <laughs> that was exactly where I was going to go. I know. I'm just going to salve that desire with the fact that I'm really glad you were up for uh, getting back together to do a podcast. It's been way too long since we've gotten to do this. It's super fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm super excited. And I, uh, I was listening to some of your episodes earlier and it's, it's insane how good it is. My numbers went up when I haven't actually (laughs) (laughs) no, I I tuned into the one with, uh, Will Begley and I thought that was really interesting. Um, your, your interview style has gotten like top notch. The questions that you're asking, I, I I noticed you asked him something like, why do you love measure for measure? And I feel like that was one of the best questions I've ever heard you ask. It was it was really nice. And and the answer he gave was even better. Uh, well, Will is incredibly easy to interview. I feel like it's it's the best kind of interview moment when you sort of forget that you're actually on a show and it just feels like you're talking with with a friend. And uh, that that at least I for whatever this is worth, I've I've found a lot of value in something you told me years ago. Uh, do you remember our first couple episodes? We were super structured. And I think yes, you watched or listened to Joe Rogan. And you came out of that and like, we have to be more conversational. It's got to right. be a conversation. So yeah. my questions from then until now have been trying to be as, as open-ended as possible with sort of creating a structure that uh, people can then talk into. And it, it seems to be working pretty well. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Will, I just, I can't say enough good things about Will Begley. I mean, he's just phenomenal. Yeah, he really is. And, and you're right. The conversational structure really brings it all together, gives it a natural feel. And I think that you've you've really done a great job of striking the perfect balance between having a structure and having a goal for the podcast, but not making it entirely goal oriented and letting letting things sort of flow freely. Um, and I think that worked really well for What's the Res, but I'm interested to hear about your new project, Optimistic Curmudgeon. Tell us, why did you start this program? What's the idea behind it? So the Optimistic Curmudgeon kind of grew out of a, an odd moment uh, over at Captive Air, uh, Bob Luddy's company. Uh, he had asked me and a couple other folks to come in where a friend of his was coming. Uh, Don Devine came over and uh, Dr. Devine was, uh, had just finished writing The Enduring Tension. Uh, don't know if he's going to win, but he's up for uh, the Conservative Book of the Year Award from ISI for 2021 for that. Wow. Book. I voted for him since he has a show on the or an episode in season one. I was like, oh, that'd be great. Hope, hope Dr. Devine wins. Oh, that's an early investment right there. That's great. Yep, there it is. Anyway, I was talking to Bob after the show, and I was uh, a little bit hesitant about the way our interview came out, not because I thought disagreed with anything Dr. Devine had to say, but because it was just a little bit edgier than we typically mm. talk about on the Thales, the main Thales podcast, Developing Classical Thinkers, which is where those interviews all ended up. Uh, DCT is a great show. It's uh, really, I guess, if we have a flagship show, it's the flagship show for Thales Podcasting. Uh, Winston Brady put that together, has done a phenomenal job uh, working with teachers and administrators to develop content. Uh, But that's all public-facing content. We intentionally put the Thales Academy brand name on that. We publicize that through Thales social media channels, all those kinds of things. 
And when you talk to an old conservative grumpy kind of guy, he tends to say old conservative grumpy things. And they're the exact kind of things we try to avoid on developing. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Bob Luddy is himself. He's old and he's sometimes grumpy. He's also the most hopeful person I've ever met about the very things he's grumpy about. And as I was talking to him, we were sort of brainstorming, what if we did a different kind of show? What if there was a show that was intentionally trying to interview conservatives and trying to sort of platform uh, con conservatives and create the freedom where they could say literally anything that they wanted to without the same kind of structure, or really strictures, the restrictions that we tend to have on a uh, school-aged focused show. Bob liked the idea, and I, <laughs> I put a proposal together, and we sort of workshopped that through the team. There's a, a team of folks who help with new ideas in the Thales world, and uh, Grattan Brown suggested Optimistic Curmudgeon as the, the title. I was like, oh, that's great. Uh, Bob really liked the idea of the curmudgeon because he had read a, uh, a book by... Um, Oh, goodness. Um, there's a guy who wrote The Bell Curve. Um, oh, man, we, we did something. We did an episode about that involved The Bell Curve. Oh. Yeah, uh, Charles Murray. That's his name. Charles okay. Called okay. Um, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Success. And uh, what, what Murray is arguing in that book is that an awful lot of youngsters get out of college and they are filled with uh, sort of the, the collegiate vibe that hates a professional dress code doesn't like to watch their their language and really doesn't know how to be successful in the workplace because they've been in college for four to eight years. Well, and sort of he wrote a thin little book about basically saying, don't cuss, wear shoes, wear a belt and do your job really, really well. That's the the gist of how to be successful in the workplace. According to Charles Murray. <laughs> wow, that was a lot more practical than I expected. Uh, it's Now, his other stuff is way more sociological and data driven. This is just, if you can sort of imagine an 80-year-old man who is still working, writing a book of advice to a 22-year-old who is interviewing for his first real job, that's the curmudgeon's guide to success. And that's really where Bob was at with that idea. And then uh, Grattan suggested the optimistic side. And I was like, oh, optimistic curmudgeon. That's oh, a that's perfect. title. That was very collaborative too. Like with what's the res that we, I know we sat and thought about it for a while, but you really came up with the, the title for the podcast, but I love the, the aha moment of that, that tag team effort there. That's great. Well, that's, I mean, that's sort of part and parcel of the way the, uh, the, the Thales world has grown to operate where someone has an idea and there's a whole bunch of people on a team and it's hard to say exactly how these projects work, but Eventually, someone maps out what needs to happen and everybody takes a piece and then you come back a few weeks later and you hash it out and boom, a project is born. It really seems like this, these podcasts and the way they start seem to have a very entrepreneurial nature to it. It, it seems like a need is identified and then you the podcast is that project that sort of fills that void because... Um, and I, with what's the res again, that was uh, a need for education and debate and really creating a bank of resources. But here it, you've done an effective job of what looks like um, securing podcast tenure where you can really say whatever you need to. And um, and that's not going to your interviews are, are not no longer seen as a hindrance, but you it's sort of a free flowing conversation, but also free flowing with thought. And, and I think that's really great because it's 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 not so good to to feel held back after you've interviewed someone when you know they, they said what they really thought, because it's very difficult to get people to do that. And that's why that's why a lot of um, sort of when you're recording podcasts, you tell people, hey, we can cut this out after I'll have you review it. You give them that sort of that that 
sense of security beforehand. But um, it seems like you've you've sort of established the parameters from the beginning in a way that's really encouraging your guests to be as open as possible. That's that's really the goal. I, I don't think anyone really tunes in to hear me at all. I think the they tune in for the name recognition of the guest. And we've had some phenomenal guests on first season. And they've got they have great comments about really interesting ideas. And uh, that's really is the the show exists to help create a space where we can really get those ideas out in a way that other people can listen to them and hear them who might not ordinarily interact with uh, with the guest. Let's get into season one a little bit. What's Has there been sort of a common thread that's tied season one together? What, or do you have any particular reflections on, on how the initial stages of this project have gone so far? Yeah, I think, uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll make two comments about that and we'll see where, where you want to take it. On a podcasting logistics note, uh, it has been really, really great to get away from our old format where we were we sort of trapped ourselves into a weekly episode format yep. uh, and and uh, tied ourselves to a uh, monthly or bi-monthly resolution release pattern. That was an enormous pressure of just like, we got to get something out. We've got people who are, on, there's a six week window where people will be interested in this topic. Um, I've gone much more towards evergreen topics and, but then also a pattern of recording people uh, well before we even launched the season. I had six episodes in the bank before we started releasing episodes uh, for season one. I've currently got eight episodes done for season two. And uh, that just, that makes life so much easier because I can focus less on just getting something out and a, a bit more on really how do we actually um, put these in some semblance of interest and order. So we can actually think about what is the arrangement of the episode order? Um, so on that note, uh, there's really been kind of, I guess, four themes that leap out to me. The, the first is like this common thread that an awful lot of problems tie back to the administrative state. I didn't really know what that phrase meant until I had uh, Don Devine came on and he explains the administrative state and he rails against the administrative state. He thinks it's absolutely awful. Uh, Bob Luddy talked about something similar. Uh, Bob Lubke hit that as well, as did Richard Vetter. All four of those guys talked about the problems of an awful lot of problems in the United States seem to track back to uh, Congress really refusing to actually pass laws. In the absence of congressional leadership, you have an executive branch that has established different agencies, and those agencies pass regulations. Uh, coming up in season two, we've got a guy named Nick Higgins who will uh, address the question of, is a regulation actually a law? <laughs> Which I Nick really, Higgins is your high school teacher, right? That, that was him. He, uh, yeah. he, was, uh, <laughs> he was fresh out of Patrick Henry College. Didn't really know all the stuff that you learn after a few years of teaching. Like, you're only supposed to give kids a little bit of reading at a time because they're supposedly overburdened. He didn't know any of that. So he like forced us to read 40 to 50 pages a night for his history classes. And uh, I loved it. It was hugely important for me. Uh, he's he's one of the reasons I ended up at Hillsdale College. We've kept in touch over the years. He's now a, uh, a political science. He's the head of North Greenville University's political science department. Economics uh, was another kind of common thread. Uh, and then we've also got a lot of stuff on education and really the choices that are available and the way that people could choose to do education differently. Uh, so those have been some of the common themes. It's really interesting how the project that like this project sort of traces the trajectory of your professional life as well. 
Um, cause and now you've, now you've moved into a, a more administrative position with respect to your job. And it seems like those themes or those ideas make their way into your episodes as well. And not necessarily with the administrative state, but certainly with regards to education. And it's interesting how you're focusing in and honing in more on those themes when you've gained some degree of immersion in that, in that environment. I think that's true. I definitely do have a whole new appreciation for the importance of leadership and the importance of the the way that a person making a decision can have uh, influence on, in my context, dozens of other people, but scale that up to a congressional or executive branch. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of other people who are really affected by a decision made by a person. And it gives me a much greater appreciation for just how important it is that that person making a decision be really close to the actors who have to then implement that decision. If I make a decision about the way we uh, are going to handle midterms, for example, uh, it matters a lot that teachers be able to see that and say, hey, you missed this. We have this teacher scheduled in three rooms at the same time. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, once, once we identify the problem, we can fix the problem. But if I'm... 2000 miles away or so far removed from the people who have to carry out that decision that that feedback is missing. It means a solution isn't possible anymore. So that's, that's definitely been something that's coming to been, I've been in my thinking a lot lately, and I'm sure it comes out in a lot of these different episodes. It appears that um, both you and your guests are really intent on the project of identifying the problem. Um, And and it seems like, I know you discussed uh, Richard Vedder, uh, coming up with Nick Higgins and and sort of speaking with Bob Luddy on the side as well. Everyone seems to have their own way of defining the problem. And and maybe maybe those definitions of the problem sort of float around each other and they attack it from different angles, but it's not necessarily different. Is there any particular guest, maybe your favorite guest, that has an interesting antidote to the problem or, or an interesting angle on attacking this problem of the administrative state or some something similar? I think the person who has done that most effectively in season one is Bob Luddy. Uh, and then uh, coming up in season two is Professor Mike Munger from uh, Duke University. They think the answer is actually virtue because the problem, depending on whether you're in Bob's case, he's looking at it primarily in the business world and then the education space. And he sees a failure of leadership and a failure of responsibility. Both of those ultimately track back to questions of virtue. And really, uh, we're, we're right back to Aristotle and those questions of what is virtue and how on earth does the current generation pass that sense of virtue on to the next generation? Uh, when I was talking to Dr. Munger, I was absolutely fascinated to hear his analysis. He's a public choice economist, and he's uh, primarily looking at uh, society from a lens of what are, the, what are the incentives that shape action and behavior? And he's really interested in looking at the fact that we have a whole generation that's unsure about the nature of virtue. And we have a huge need for virtue in uh, economics, in politics, in business, in education, uh, in life as entrepreneurs. And really, how do we help people realize that Aristotle was, in fact, right about the fact that virtue is necessary for for a happy life? Uh, So I think those are two who I think have really... Uh, they, I, I kind of expected, I expected Bob to have sort of a business formula, if you will. Mm-hmm. I expected Dr. Munger to uh, uh, sort of provide a high-level economic, maybe a supply and demand curve. Uh, Some kind of equation, maybe. Nope. For for both of them, the answer really was it's it, it's virtue, and it's, it's how do we get people to realize that uh, personal responsibility matters enormously. 
And when we see personal responsibility taken up and owned, all of a sudden that starts to tighten up current weaknesses in the family, in the education space, in the polis as a whole, and even on the scale of the nation state. But when we see those failures of personal responsibility, all of a sudden we that's where we start to see people scrambling for, well, where can we find systems that will compensate for a lack of personal responsibility? And of course, all of those systems cost time, they cost effort, and they cost money. And suddenly you're looking at, and they're they're not nearly as effective as fixing the actual problem, which is a weakness in personal responsibility. And so if we can shore that up, then suddenly we're looking at a much better society as a whole. And that's really interesting how um, I I didn't want to sort of jump out and say this at first that um, about Professor Munger and how I expected some very technical solution to this, but it seems like a lot of the guests on your show take a take a very sort of ground up approach by by focusing in on virtue, which is um, something that you don't really see with with people who are actually making these decisions and who act sort of like, I don't know, maybe architects of society would be a good way of putting it, sort of putting things together. And like you said, establishing a system to compensate for something for a deeper problem. Um, and it's really great to see how so how those the ideas and those opinions aren't removed or entirely removed from the problem at hand, whatever that problem may be, and however many different levels of complexity that you could you could speak to it. Um, on that, so on that yeah, go ahead, go ground ahead. up level, I mean, I think that's that's part of the uh, the type of guest I'm looking for. Uh, I think Russell Kirk gave the best understanding of conservatism or the best definition of conservatism. Uh, he really he defined it by way of six canons of conservatism that became uh, the basis of his book, The Conservative Mind. Uh, one of the pieces, one of those canons of conservatism has to do with uh, really it's the idea of subsidiarity or localism, local relationships being where you see the actual most effective change. You can you can affect very little in a positive sense on a national or an international scale, but you can affect you can have a much more concentrated change on a smaller scale as where in terms of political action, you actually see a lot more uh, real political action happen at the level of the town council, Uh, the people who are voting on whether or not we should raise taxes to so that we can afford to pave the roads in a town. Like that's the level of political change. But when you get to, for example, uh, President Biden's massive infrastructure bill, uh, you have much less effective change because you're now operating on such a huge scale. Now, at the same time, when you're operating on that scale, when you do have change, it is incredibly wide reaching. But the stakes are so much higher because you are it is so much more wide reaching. If President Biden's infrastructure bill is actually ultimately a bad thing for the, the nation as a whole, it's really hard to course correct once we've actually put that large of a change in place. So I think part of conservatism as a whole is looking at that much more local, that much more small minded scale. And that's where you see individuals who are conservative minded, even if they would balk at being called that, uh, they really are looking for, they're really, it's unusual to have a true conservative have a policy solution. A true conservative is usually back to, well, who are the people really involved there? And how can we get the right people involved in whatever the issue is so that they make better decisions? It's more about the people than it is about passing a massive policy solution. That's That reminds me of what you said earlier about how um, the administrative state is removed from the actor in a sense. And the further away those two things get, the more sort of blanket, overreaching, overarching 
uh, the the policy decisions or those ideas get. And and the sort of blanket policy isn't going to work because it's so far removed from the actor that the effectiveness sort of suffers when you when you have that distance. And I think this is this is great because we in one of my classes we read Plato's Republic for we read the, the whole thing actually. And so where Plato sort of likens like the, the the person to the city and talked about sort of how the virtue of, we can look at the virtue of a city or sorry, well, the justice of a city really to sort of determine what that looks like on an individual level. But really, really what it takes or what it looks like it takes is for that justice or virtue to be achieved on the individual level so that it could show up better in society. So it's almost like the cyclical or reciprocal relationship where you can use it as an analogy to see what that might look like in the person, but it really starts with the person. And, and I think that we're we're seeing that sort of develop as a need and a sort of maybe even sickness in society. And we're kind of learning that the hard way, but it's it's definitely to be expected. So I wanna, I wanna shift gears a little bit and talk about the logistics of the podcast for, for a moment. What's logistically different about the optimistic curmudgeon, as opposed to what's there is. Part of that we probably already hit on a little bit in terms of recording uh, framework is different, but uh, also the the kind of the the, the uh, finding guest is different too. Uh, for what's the res, uh, we were sort of our guests were really driven by the nature of the resolution. Um, in terms for in terms of the optimistic curmudgeon, I know I'm already looking for a certain kind of guest. I mean, this is where. I think there are, and this is this is me. Uh, I might be wrong about this. What I'm about to say, but this is this is. I think this is true. So I'm steering the show in that direction. I think there are currently a lot of places where people can go if they want to uh, kind of give the progressive answer to political questions or economic questions or philosophical questions. I think the uh, the progressive voice in terms of what is the human person and what are we either capable of or not in terms of just how much about ourselves can we change? I think that that voice currently has a, a lot of cultural momentum. It's not hard to find people explaining the progressive end of things. But I think the uh, the conservative end of those discussions is it's more difficult than it used to be to find people who hold those who hold those views and can articulate them well. So I know I'm already looking for somebody on that conservative end. Uh, the show has a set of pillars uh, that I'm always looking for a topic that kind of fits inside one of those pillars, uh, whether that's economics or philosophy or politics or education uh, or great books. Uh, th those are the five areas. Uh, and I think there might be a couple more. I was, I was very broad when I pitched this and I thought of like, what are the kinds of conversations I enjoy listening to and I enjoy having? And they tended to fall in those sort of categories. So I'm always looking for people who have those sorts of uh, interest. And I'm also looking for the, a guest whose credentialing uh, will lend credibility to what they have to say. Because there are plenty of people on the political right or inside various strands of conservatism who I would agree with a lot of what they have to say, but they tend to come off as crackpots. And that's that's just part of the right. I think it's also part of the left, but it's definitely yeah. on the political right. We have our crackpots. I'm just going to say many of them were gathered at the uh, National Conservatism Conference uh, in Florida a couple of weeks ago. Uh, several of them showed up on January 6th in D.C. a year ago for uh, a, uh, a riot, a protest, whatever you want to call it. I don't think it was a revolution or an insurrection, 
But it was definitely not a great moment for anyone on the political right. And uh, thanks a lot for that, guys, because that, that actually got my trip to D.C. canceled. I was supposed to that was during college application season. I was supposed yep. to go with Hillsdale to D.C. and that just uh, didn't happen. Oh, uh, the Q shaman guy. I mean, they're just like, I don't want anything to do with the Q shaman or QAnon or any of that stuff. I don't want him to say he's on anything close to what I consider my side of politics. <laughs> like, anyway, I don't want this show to at all be connected with that side of the political right. So one of the ways that I use, one of the things I'm also on the lookout for are people who are qualified to then say something that might be controversial, but their qualifications make them believable. So the first criteria is PhD, uh, which uh, I know we were talking before the show about the, or no, uh, about the, you listened to the episode with Will Begley. Yep. Did we rant, did, did his rant about why he hates PhD as a qualification metric, did I leave that in the show? Do you remember? It, it was at the very beginning, yeah. So he, if I'm not mistaken, he, but he, that's a very common thing with him, I think, to, it, it is. to sort I mean, of he, respond to being called doctor or anything like that. Which, of course, now is kind of necessary when he and his brother are teaching at the same school. So right? Mr. Yeah. Begley and Dr. Begley became a way for kids to differentiate, but I know Will hates the fact that uh, I was willing to have him come on the show because he has a PhD and loves mm. Shakespeare. Uh, but that that's that's a metric. Um, a second metric I've used uh, is whether or not somebody has written a book about the topic they're talking about. Coming up in season two, uh, I've got a really interesting guy named Shane Trotter who uh, has a book coming out in 2022 about uh, uh, education and just what ha- what happens to the to schools when we get rid of metrics and weighable grades. And he thinks that's actually a terrible thing, which I think is really interesting because there's uh, there are plenty of people in the conservative world who would get rid of grades. But then when we get rid of grades, there causes all kinds of other problems. Uh, but he has a book coming out that is published by a mainstream press. And I thought, oh, that 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 meets my criteria. Uh, my third kind of criteria that uh, is also coming up in season two uh, is somebody who's just really interesting as a person. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so I've got one of those. Uh, his name is Daniel Garner. Uh, we actually talk about uh, Hannah Arendt's book on the origins of totalitarianism. Mr. Garner, was uh, he has a law degree, so technically a terminal degree, a juris doctorate. Uh, and he worked for the state of North Carolina in their finance department for several years. Uh, but he read Hannah Arendt's book, and uh, he's a really interesting guy. He has 11 children. Uh, he just He's a really interesting guy. And I thought, you know, we should do a conversation together and we'll make it a great books conversation. Uh, so uh, that's probably the biggest logistical change besides recording in advance and, and trying to kind of standardize intro, outro kinds of things uh, is really the having a much more pick, clear picture of who am I looking for, who would be an interesting guest, and then trying to trade on their credibility to propel the credibility of the show. It, it sounds like this this show has really experienced uh, a lot of freedom in the sense that you're not, it's not reactionary to external circumstances. Like what's the res was right? new resolution comes out and, and it's sort of what's the res sort of fit into the debate culture, I guess you could say. And that makes it consequently fit into the debate timing of things. And, and while that's useful and it, it kept us on our toes for sure and, and kept our episodes relevant um, it, it definitely restricted a lot of the freedom we had with when we're going to post or what types of discussions we want to post. And it was more at the whims of, of what the NSDA is going to decide and when they're going to decide it. But I think that the, the freedom that sort of characterizes this new project 
really, really serves the the types of guests and the types of conversations that you're having. And, and it seems like that's that's done really well for the optimistic curmudgeon. I, and I don't think that any other structure would serve the show as well as the one that you've got going so far. And um, and I'm really excited to hear from some of these new guests coming up. And and, and one more thing I'll add for sort of that that summary is the distinction you made between liberal and conservative. And how, and this just reminds me of sort of the themes that we were talking about earlier, how sort of the, the administrative state, the progressive and liberal side of things is really, is really evident in academia today. And I, I know I'm seeing that at university a lot, where, where these ideas are sort of easy to grasp and easy to, to palette in a sense, and, and maybe they seem like good, good ideas on the surface. But I really like the point you made about how conservatism is sort of located at a smaller, more focused in level. And it's, it's centralized maybe in, maybe in the local community, but maybe more specifically the person. And it takes a lot of ideas, a lot of thinkers, a lot of conversations, a lot of reading, books, books read and written to sort of to sort of locate where those problems exist, perhaps in the local, the locality or in the person and sort of draw together a picture of the puzzle of what conservatism really looks like. And I think that may maybe this is sort of the future of what of or a future of conservatism, where you have individual projects in investigating people, individuals, and sort of the ideas that, that they've encountered and their interpretation of those ideas. And that really seems to mirror the ground up approach that conservatism seems to be characterized by is these smaller projects that take a very, a very intentional and introspective look at, um, at what these ideas are supposed to be. So uh, that paired with the, the really technical and logistical side of things seems to be working really well for the optimistic curmudgeon as a project, sort of as a whole. I, I, I certainly think so. I mean, it's, it's been, I mean, I, I don't want to overplay how successful season one has been. Um, we've, we've had so far as well, uh, the episode we're currently recording will be episode 12. Uh, we will break a thousand plays across two primary platforms um, by the time this one drops. I've expanded the show to YouTube, which we never did a nice. YouTube component. Back when That's we great. started What's the Res, I was not aware of any podcast that really did a YouTube presence. But I think one of the big shifts in podcasting over the last two years or so has been a big migration to video podcasting, where right. I keep meeting people who tell me they watch podcasts. And that still strikes my ear as weird because I... I got into podcasting in part because I read an essay on the imaginative conservative by uh, Dwight Longenecker, who talked about podcasting as an audio storytelling form. And I thought that was really interesting. But now it's both audio and, audio and visual. This is probably still back on the logistics thing, too. Like Zoom has actually become more useful as a recording platform than getting together in person, which still strikes me as weird. But part of that is because it is log a logistical nightmare to set up lighting and sound in person if you don't have a strong background in audiovisual technology, which, you know, I don't. I mean, I part of what I loved about our initial setup was that we got these uh, plug and play microphones that you've got there, the, the fee find there from yep. our, our previous podcast days. Uh, but actually like, setting up good lighting for recording is ridiculously difficult. So we've got a couple episodes that have been professionally recorded uh, by a video videographer that uh, Captive Air keeps on retainer. Uh, but most of our episodes are done in this Zoom format uh, that works really well. I was going somewhere else with that. I lost my original train of thought. No, no. I mean, I think that's great. Like, um, and just from a sort of an industry standard perspective, that's a huge advantage that Podbean as a hosting platform has. Because I know not all hosting platforms support 
video podcasting in the way that Podbean does, from what I could tell, because I was just looking through these recently to decide for a new podcast that I'm going to be working on. If if I said switch platforms, or there'd be uh-huh. an advantage to going with a different provider. But as far as I can tell, Podbean, Podbean is still up there in the top five um, they, with its yeah. video capability, really putting it ahead of the game. They, they do. I, I really like Podbean. If they ever are listening to this and want to uh, send us any credit for uh, plugging them, that's always cool. But <laughs> Uh, they they do a great job of sending podcasters lots of tips and uh, in, uh, development articles and that sort of thing. The other thing I want to mention to your previous comment, though, is that uh, uh, everything I'm describing is not really that's not really the the I don't know that I would agree that it's the future wave of conservatism, but it definitely is where what I would define as traditionalist conservatism has been uh, for the last sixty years. Uh, this was. Conservatism, going back to the era era of uh, Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in the 1960s, was really all about this kind of vision of uh, it's all about the locality. It's about and it, it's not about achieving particular policy aims. It's really about conserving a certain tradition and way of life from one generation to the next. It's an evolving tradition. It's not a static tradition, but it's looking to conserve and transmit rather than uh, revolutionize and start from scratch every so often. That kind of conservatism is hard to, it's not as quick a sell as the uh, let's burn everything to the ground and build something new. I think in, in more recent days, we've seen the uh, the attempts to uh, sort of the, the defund the police mantra that swept the nation over the last two years and just how compelling a vision that was. But we can now look even over two years, like the areas of the country, I'm thinking like Seattle and Chicago, that really embrace that, they have seen such huge upswings in crime that like, no, it actually means we, <laughs> that was not a great idea. Conservatism would really push back on that and say, well, actually, if for 400 years, developed cities have found it helpful to have an established police force, we need to think really long and hard about it before we just get rid of that. Yeah, it's that it's that thinking long and hard. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's it's sort of that thinking long and hard about things that that seems to make conservatism so unattractive. It's like, who doesn't want to be part of the revolutionary approach? Who doesn't want to change something or burn something to the ground and and be a part of that 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 very intentional and purpose driven narrative that that seems to infuse these types of reactions to to whatever events may occur on a daily basis. But it's and it's very difficult to sort of shift that perspective and and get you to sort of look at what's tried and true and and recognize that again like you said it's an evolving tradition so it's not going to look the same you know maybe a decade down the line a century down the line as it did today but there there are certain consistencies in there that are valuable that that don't necessarily crumble at the slightest whim that 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 you really you really can't defeat from a revolutionary perspective and i think that as as people try that more and more maybe that that will become more evident um through through just multiple examples manifesting it as history goes on, but I guess we'll we'll wait and see what that looks like and how history unfolds. For sure, and I think there's I mean, there's something I think there's some necessary tie between that vision of federal of conservatism and uh, the framers of the the framers and founders of our republic uh, consideration of different levels of government having different responsibilities. Like there's a reason why the state does matter as an organizational principle. And that's different from what happens at the federal level. And that's both of those are different still from what happens at the local level. And that's built into our constitution. It's built into our polity. But every generation, there are folks who seem to be ready to pretty much get rid of all of that structure and throw it away. And yet still that structure survives. I think you're right about there being some durability to that. 
for sure. Right. Is it, and all of it, all of it sounds um, super exciting. And I know we've covered a lot of ground in the podcast so far about um, themes, logistics, uh, favorite guests. I'm looking forward to season two. So what's um, what's coming up? Who do we have coming on? Are we getting into any new ideas or, or developing any older ideas that we've hit on the show so far? Uh, definitely. I am really excited about these. I'm going to list, I'll, I'll kind of run through the eight that I've currently got recorded as sort of a, a preview of coming attractions. Uh, but there, there definitely is room for more guests. And uh, if we have enough episodes, these future recordings will either go into season three or we'll expand season two. Uh, coming up, we've got uh, Dr. Alan Mindenhall from Troy University. Uh, we have a, he and I have a conversation about the nature of the South today. Uh, he is the editor of the Southern Review. And uh, he, he's also, uh, he, he has a lot of roles that we kind of run. His title takes up a little while. Uh, but he's a fascinating guest. Uh, he also is a huge fan of bow ties. I don't have a bow tie on. Nice. Dr. Mendenhall is a very classy fellow. Uh, so we have a long discussion about whether or not the South is still a meaningful culture and distinction there. Uh, another guest I was re- I'm really excited about is a lady named Carissa Mulder. Uh, she was an author on a book that came out recently on the problems of race-based admissions in higher education. So that continues a couple themes of uh, looking at race relations. Uh, we have uh, uh, Robert Pondicio does that very effectively in season one. It also brings in questions of higher education like uh, that Richard Vetter addressed in season one. Uh, but uh, Mulder brings in these whole questions of just how widespread are uh, race-based admissions in higher education and how does that actually harm minority students? That was the part that I found most intriguing is she thinks that actually where uh, the most well-intentioned folks who believe they are helping minorities through race-based admissions practices are actually harming the very students that they want to serve. And so this too becomes a question of, well, wait a minute, if we're harming the very people we want to help, we need to change something. And what about, is there something inherently unjust about this? Uh, one guest, another guest I have on the show, the season two is uh, Dr. Kevin Roberts. When we recorded, he was the uh, president of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. They're the largest policy advocacy uh, organization in the United States. Since then, he has taken a position as the president of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, wow, so- that is awesome. Look at that. <laughs> How many times have I cited Heritage for debate cases? Right, and things right. Like that? that is insane. I mean, they are, I, I think they're, I I don't really know why I think this, but I think of them as the leading think tank for research on the political right in the United States today. Uh, He and I have a discussion about the debacle of uh, the Biden administration's removal of troops from Afghanistan. And I think we, we, we try pretty hard not to just bash President Biden the whole episode. That's, that's not what that conversation is about. But it is about the fact that he is the president who oversaw the removal of American troops from Afghanistan, and it was handled incredibly poorly. And uh, we both thought that that needed to be named and, and described. On the philosophy side, I've got a professor named uh, Matthew Slaybach, who has uh, a book about the idea of progress and whether or not progress is actually achievable. I mentioned Nick Higgins already and Shane Trotter, Mike Munger, and Daniel Garner. Uh, so we've got lots of conversations about philosophy, about politics, about uh, and, and really getting into uh, different questions of uh, really that are they're current, but they're also timeless uh, is, is really the goal of the kinds of episodes. So I'm really excited about season two and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll pick up listeners. Uh, one of the other big changes I'm looking forward to in season two is a small but existent advertising budget. Advertising this show is primarily limited to uh, either 
my personal social media network or uh, people that I can then uh, get intrigued through our LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, Facebook presence. Doing that on the for free is is limited. Uh, so I'm really excited to see what does the ability to boost post, what does that actually generate as far as a larger audience, and hopefully build some momentum and build a larger LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, and Twitter presence through that. That's that's really awesome, and I am. I'm definitely looking forward to all of these interviews. And it's crazy that you already have these recorded. I, I just wanted to make a quick comment. Having banked episodes is so underrated for the for the podcasting world, I feel like, because just having that helps you be so much more consistent. And, and like you said, you don't have to worry about being reactionary to, to certain elements of timing that may exist externally or things of that nature. It's just you record it when you can. These these topics aren't going anywhere. Like you said, they're timeless and, it, and it's, it's not really sensitive to that sort of thing. But it's so interesting how all of these different topics seem, they, they're they not as sparse as they may appear on a surface level because they, they really all point back to something in us. And and it's it seems like the sort of the, the project for the listener is to be able to tie these things together and, and recognize in particular examples that timeless element of what that interview or that expert is trying to get at. And I, I think that's really something really great that the optimistic curmudgeon can point its listeners towards. Getting at that idea is one of the reasons I was interested in us doing kind of a, uh, a wrap-up episode for season one, because I remember talking to my dad about the, the show initially, and he listened to a couple episodes. He was like, yeah, it was an interesting interview, but what's it for? How does it relate? Mm. What's, what's the tell-off? And I was like, I think part of what's uh, the tell us. Yeah, I mean, what, what's what's the purpose? Part of part of the show has been. Well, what's the res? We were pretty intentional about starting with a episode zero. What's it all about? But what I found right. really interesting about now we did that in part because I think I I told you we needed to do one of those. But that was our least listened to episode out of 141 episodes. And in all honesty. People do not care about the origins of the yeah. show episode, at least not at the beginning. What I thought was really interesting, looking at the the data on our on what's the res, was that as we figured out our niche, we attracted a larger audience and our listens picked up. But they picked up going forward. They did not pick up going backwards. There were not very many people who went all the way back to episode zero and listened to that one. But I still think it matters to sort of draw those threads together. So I figured at the end of season one might be the time to sort of do a reflective, what is all this really about? And I think you you named it really well. I mean, that part of the goal of this is to, um, in my mind, is to sort of model through hosting and invite other people who share this vision uh, through the guest. Uh, but we're really trying to model the life of the mind and a life of continual learning. And that means we're interested not just in a single topic that we always return to, but rather we're interested in the broader questions of what does it mean to live a good life? What does that mean for an individual? That's sort of our philosophy side. That might be our great book side. But also, what does that mean for the community? And now we're in, now we're in questions of philosophy, politics, and economics. Um, how do we And how do we transmit all of that? Well, that brings us to questions of education. And that brings us to the fact that none of these are ever settled. They really are. are uh, another part of our what's the rest tagline was the ongoing conversation. And that's really what, in my mind, all yeah. of these are. They're part of this ongoing conversation that you and I have both been brought into by different people along the years. And I want to keep talking with people who are also part of that conversation. And as we do that, we bring in that next generation and we help them know, 
it matters that we think about these things and we come up with answers and maybe that we grow in our answers and we change our answers over time. But we can't ignore the questions. The questions demand consideration. It's, it's so great how the, the sort of mission statement of what's the res was the ongoing conversations in the world of high school debate. But now with the optimistic curmudgeon, it's just the ongoing conversations in the world. And, and I think that I mean, people really have an ear for that. And it's so great. And it, that comment that you made about doing the reflection after there's something to reflect about really makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a huge learning curve or a learning point, at least from the, from the initial project. Um, Cause really I found that when we started What's the Res, we didn't really know what it was about. We've, we, identified, we identified a need and that's, that's probably about it. It was, it was just as much a discovery process for us as it was for any of our original listeners. Um, but it's, it's really great to have, this, to have a reflection actually be a reflection. Um, so, so maybe if your dad listens to this episode, he can get some answers to his questions about what this interview is about or what this interview is about. And hopefully we've drawn out that truth a little bit. Um, and I, I do want to sort of transition slightly. I'm interested in this intro outro music. It seems that you've moved away from the trap beats of what's the res. So, so what's this new music that you've got going on and why did you pick it? Both of those come from Holst, uh, guy, uh, guy's last name is Holst. He wrote a famous, uh, piece of music called the planets. Uh, the intro music comes from Jupiter, uh, the Jupiter piece. So Holst wrote a, uh, he wrote seven, uh, seven different songs or pieces of music that form together a complete whole. Those seven are reflective of the medieval cosmology. Uh, what he was trying to do was create the feeling that was supposed to correspond to the medieval view of that planet. So Jupiter is the king of the gods, and he is, the Jupiter piece is supposed to communicate sovereignty and rule. The intro music is from Jupiter, and it's a piece that, to my ear at least, uh, it sounds orderly, it sounds kind of cosmic, and it sounds like we're getting a little bit of insight into the underlying principles of reality. Mm. Now, like all pieces of music, there's that mixture of objectivity and subjectivity. I can't really tell you why I feel that way with that piece of music. But that's at least what was in my mind when I clipped those precise 15 seconds. Uh, and so that, that, that comes in. That's the intro music for every Optimistic Curmudgeon episode. For the outro, I wanted, a, I wanted an upbeat outro. Uh, so I went and listened through uh, Mars, Bringer of War. Uh, <laughs> nice. The tagline is uh, something to do with jollity. So it's supposed to be a yeah. jolly, glorious king reigning over the cosmos. Mars is the bringer of war. My closing question is always something about what do you, let's turn this kind of grumpy conversation towards hope. Where do you see the hope in whatever we've been talking about today? And my, my hope is that that, that sends our conversation, that sends our listeners out on sort of a, all right, for as bad as the analysis of whatever the topic is, there is hope. And now we are ready to go to war for restoring the good, the true and the beautiful in the world. And so uh, the, the outro is always this bit from Mars, bringer of war. And like, we are the listeners who through this conversation are better prepared to go war for the good in our homes, our hearts, and our communities. It seems like the music really uh, sort of redeems the curmudgeon as optimistic at the end of the show is it with a sort of call to action and a call to purpose that doesn't just leave you in a sort of that grumpy state. That's really cool. That's funny that you put it as a call to action because I learned that structure from competing in uh, collegiate forensics from through Pi Kappa Delta once upon a time. And uh, maybe that too, maybe that's where I kind of get that impetus from that we just can't quite close it out any other way, but we've got to be considerate. Where do we go from here? 
That's really great. Um, so I'm interested. You've, you've interviewed a variety of guests for season one. Season two seems pretty packed as it is. Um, what are you reading right now? Is it anything that might um, sort of influence you towards some speakers or some interviewees for season three? So what do you, what's sort of your focus right now? Well, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, I'm a PhD student. That means my, my reading is not always my own. Uh, I'm currently reading a book from uh, Dr. Ben, written by Dr. Ben Voth. Uh, he, he was uh, episode 10. Uh, he came on and talked about genocide. Uh, so, uh, Which one was it? Which book? Uh, I think it's his most recent one. It's uh, Rwanda Rising Debate he as just, Pedagogy. He won the National Book Award for that. He told me. What? Yes. What? Like he, two, I think two and a half weeks ago, maybe. Oh, my um, goodness. So, yeah, that was – it didn't mean to interrupt, but, yeah, that's that was yeah. huge for him. So, huge moment for Dr. Ben Both. Uh, ben is a phenomenal guy. I mean, and – and uh, I'm, I'm reading to write a review of it for uh, the Acton Institute, uh, their quarterly publication, uh, Religion and Liberty, I think is going to run that at some point next year. Throughout that book, you see him, you see his heart for teaching shine through. I mean, I think the, the best portions of that book are when he's describing being in Rwanda, seeing the way debate works on students and changes them, or when he's talking about working with Holocaust survivors and helping them craft their narratives uh, for so that they can share the narrative, their their experiences in suffering in the Holocaust with people who denied the existence of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. uh, you just see his, and he has great stories about being with students and taking them to uh, significant places for the civil rights movements and the life of James Farmer. And you just see him as a teacher shine forth through that book. He really uh, has. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say that's that's the that's the one uh, that's the one serious book I'm reading right now. Something really remarkable about Dr. Voth is that element of courage that he has um, and, and sort of really pushing the boundaries of where debate can take you. And I think that was that was evident in his in his book, The Rhetoric of Genocide, but with Rwanda, Rwanda rising even more so. Um, and he I, I spoke with him a couple of days ago at one of the coolest tournaments about his experience with sort of political backlash and how he really has to leverage the his tenure as a professor, as a protection for those sorts of things. And he he commented that when he was at, I believe, I don't want to get this wrong, I believe this was at the sort of committee for the National Book Award, because several awards are given out. It's not just for one book. And it was in a particular category that's escaping my memory right now. Um, but he was saying that he was the only he was one of a kind in that committee, I guess you could say, politically speaking. And, and, and I joked at dinner that he was the only one that didn't select other for something. And he, um, but he, he really existed in an environment, a very um, oppositional environment at university, but that hasn't stopped him. And, and I think, in fact, that may have infused his projects even further. So that's, that's really great to see that, that that's the book that you're working on. And I intend to work on that one in the future as well. So I hope, uh, I'm interested to see that review for the Acton Institute come to fruition. Uh, a couple other books that I've run across recently that I'd love to have conversations with the authors. Don't know. Uh, some of these are, are huge reaches. Uh, I re this last year, I read Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. Uh, okay. I think that is the most uh, important popular level book on transgender issues that's come out in recent history. I would love to get her on the show. I did message her on Twitter and, you know, you, you send things out and you just hope that someone talks back and no response. Someday, if our show gets big enough, uh, I would love to have her on the show, but we're, we're very small potatoes uh, for her. She's, she's uh, currently going on much larger shows, uh, but she'd be someone I'd love to have on the show. Um, 
I'm blanking on the name of the author. Uh, I know he's an Indian entrepreneur in the United States, but he wrote uh, a book called Woke Capitalism that looks absolutely mm. fascinating. Uh, that's a that's a topic I'd be really interested in learning more about. Uh, of just uh, someone from the business community who is himself a uh, who's part of uh, who's uh, part of capital investments, um, really describing the ways that uh, investors are using their money not. Not the way we might describe and say, ooh, uh, that looks like a great product. I want to invest in that, but rather, oh, that's a great mission. I want to further your mission. Mm-hmm. Here's a lot of money to advance a social justice cause in some way. I just completed a fellowship with uh, George Mason Center, George Mason University's Mercatus Center. Uh, I've read a couple books by, uh, or one book by a guy named Peter Betke. Uh, that was all about classical liberalism and what it holds for the future. Um, I've also read, uh, I've got a couple books by uh, different scholars uh, blooming in, from Bloomington, Indiana, uh, the, uh, the Ostroms, Eleanor and Victor Ostrom. Those, they would also be folks I'd love to have on the show. Uh, doing this fellowship got me, gave me enough economic vocabulary to think I want to talk to people who know a lot more about economics than I do. And I want to pick their brains about how to analyze the facts, facts in front of us. Uh, so those are, uh, there's also a, I'm blanking on his name. He's at Baylor University. Um, uh, I ordered his book, The Scholar Who Has One of the Most Interesting uh, Insights on uh, Family Structure in the United States Today, I think would be really interesting to uh, talk about because he's somebody who's really dug into the data on uh, marriage rates, uh, people who are choosing to cohabitate but not marry, uh, looking at birth rates uh, and which are uh, a pretty, pretty, pretty sharp fall worldwide, but especially the developed world. Uh, Africa and India as developing are not yet, they, they still have very high birth rates, but the implications of the birth rate for considerations of the future, is I think really interesting. I'd love to uh, get some folks on the show who have done the research and have the credentials to speak kind of authoritatively and quantitatively to that issue. It's it's one thing to uh, think about the philosophical implications of choosing to postpone having children. I really want to talk to somebody who can tell me what does that mean on a medical standpoint, and what does it mean on an economic standpoint? To because uh, our in a in a very large sense, our economics is a living picture of what we assume is going to happen years from now. Mm. So what what happens to us as a culture when we? assume that the average adult is not going to have children. When we assume like what happens to a university that is making plans for 50 or hundred years from now, and they have to assume that their student body population shrinks by 30%. Wow. And like, so those are the kinds of questions I'm like, ah, oh, those are really interesting. I think they, they have a lot to do with what are we trying, what is it worth conserving and what, how do we live in such a way that we, pass something on to the next generation. So those are some things I've been thinking about and would love to chat with people about. So we'll, we'll see what, what future seasons hold. That all sounds great. It sounds like so far since season one has been a great success. Uh, lots of interesting conversations. We've got things packed up and ready for season two. And it's, it's looking like you're ready to have a lot of good conversations about 
things that are becoming relevant in the context and through the lens of things that have always been relevant. And that seems to be sort of what the optimistic curmudgeon is all about with, of course, that, that element of hope in that outro music at the end. Um, so Josh, thank you so much for having me. Listeners, thank you for having me and, and joining us for another episode of the optimistic curmudgeon. You've been listening to another conversation on the optimistic curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good. Love the true and pursue the beautiful.